1: Most Notorious contains adult themes. It is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Chicago, the 1920s. It was everything you might imagine it to be. It was a city of highs and lows, world-famous Michigan Avenue, massive skyscrapers, banks, department stores, owned by some of the richest men in America. And to counter this glorious, gleaming image, expansive, stinking stockyards, endless blocks of tottering tenements, immigrants competing for scraps of bread, Socialists screaming for economic justice, politicians promising the moon but taking bribes alongside many of the cops that worked for them. Prohibition was in full swing, creating an army of criminal bootleggers across the city. Religious groups, many of them led by determined women, formed temperance organizations to combat the evils of the booze that was flowing faster than the Chicago River. Al Capone was the king of the South Side, making tens of millions of dollars a year, and his organization responsible for killing up to a thousand people. But in 1924, a single crime threw Chicago into the national spotlight. Two boys, still teenagers, planned and committed a kidnapping that quickly became murder. To say it was a sensational story was an understatement. It absolutely hypnotized the country. Everyone expected a certain level of filth from Chicago. Mob hits and widespread corruption were par for the course here. But two young men of exceptional backgrounds, murdering a young boy in cold blood? How could it happen? Simon Bartz, the author of For the Thrill of It, Leopold Loeb and the Murder that Shocked Chicago, is a professor of history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He tells the disturbing story of Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb and what led them to commit one of the most infamous murders in Chicago history. Simon Bartz, thank you so much for joining me. Your book starts with the Franks family in the days and hours leading up to the kidnapping. Can you talk about the Franks family? Who were they?
2: The Franks family was very prominent in Chicago. Um, they lived on the part of Chicago, which is really south of the city. It wasn't built up in those days, and it was very close to the University of Chicago. And the father was prominent in the Democratic Party, although he never really stood as a candidate for election but also he was a very prominent businessman. But the thing that was most notable noticeable about him was that he was extremely wealthy. I think, I can't remember exactly how much he was worth, I think, but it was at least $4 million. And that's in 1924 dollars. Um, so he was a very prominent person at the time. And he had, um, he had, Four children that I came across in the newspapers, um, ranging in ages from about 17 to 10, and Bobby Franks was the third child. The victim, Bobby Franks, was the third child, and he was about 14 at the time when he was kidnapped.
1: When a body is found in a culvert in a wildlife park, it's eventually identified as Bobby Franks. Alongside the body are a pair of eyeglasses, Could you talk about the discovery of Bobby's body and how it triggered the police investigation?
2: Yes. The two kidnappers, uh, Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold, got their victim about 5 o'clock on a Wednesday evening and killed him immediately and then drove around waiting for dusk so that they could hide the body. And Nathan Leopold had uh, had a hobby of ornithology and often used to go out to the Forest Preserve which is um, an area of natural beauty south of Chicago And, and Nathan Leopold knew about a ditch in which he suggested they could conceal the body and they did conceal the body but they didn't do it properly and so there was a The next morning, about eight o'clock in the morning, a workman was coming home from the night shift and was walking along the side of the ditch and looked down and saw a foot coming out of this drainage pipe. And um, they, some of his um, workmates came along, they retrieved the body, the body was naked, it was bruised, Um, there'd obviously been violence, and then they found a pair of eyeglasses and this really was the crucial clue because these eyeglasses originally the police imagined that the eyeglasses belonged to the victim but in fact that wasn't the case and the eyeglasses had a special hinge and this hinge had not been no such eyeglasses were manufactured in chicago in fact anywhere in the midwest and it was a, it was a hinge that belonged to a company in brooklyn and so the police tracked the eyeglasses back to the company in brooklyn went through the records of the company who have you sold these eyeglasses to and they found out that three people in the chicago area had bought these eyeglasses and one of them was this student nathan leopold who was studying at the university of chicago at the time And so they brought him in for questioning and they wanted to know how his eyeglasses had ended up very close to the corpse in the ditch. And he had a ready explanation. His explanation was that he had been bird watching the previous weekend and that he had stumbled and that he had the eyeglasses had dropped out of his pocket. But when the state's attorney and his men then asked well, how could this happen, you know, you <clears throat> where did you have your eyeglasses, what pocket in the coat did you have your eyeglasses, and they asked him to try and repeat this, and he couldn't repeat it. The eyeglasses didn't fall out of his pocket when he was in front of the state's attorney. And so they just began to ask more and more questions. They wanted to know about his alibi. Where was Nathan Leopold at the time when the child had disappeared? And Nathan mentioned a friend of his called Richard Loeb claimed, Nathan claimed that he had been with Richard Loeb at the time when the victim had disappeared in some other part of Chicago. And so obviously the police contacted Richard Loeb and asked him where he had been that evening. And he repeated the same alibi as his friend. The two boys gave the same alibi, but there were inconsistencies. And they then searched, they went into the homes, the home of Nathan Leopold and and searched the home and found out that he had a letter to his friend which hinted at a sexual relationship. and. Also, Nathan Leopold had a gun in his bedroom, and so they they just held them and they started to question them about their uh, about their activities. The two now they had the two boys in custody: one, Nathan Leopold, and the second boy, Richard Loeb.
1: Tell us about Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb. Who were they? Uh, how did they meet? What was the nature of their relationship?
2: I think the thing that I was very fortunate when I started my research on the book that one of the first things I found was a psychiatric report by a psychiatrist on both Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. And this report is in the National Archives in Washington DC and it's, it's at the National Archives because the psychiatrist Was a federal employee. He was the director of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which is an asylum in the capital, in the federal capital. And um, this psychiatric report gives great detail on the childhood and the upbringing of both of the accused boys. And Nathan Leopold, according to the psychiatrist, was a very I'm not sure, I don't think timid is the right word, but very, um, he's not an outgoing character, not an extrovert, not a very forceful character. And he was someone who was rather lonely. He had been bullied as a young child. Um, His governess had been very inappropriate with him as a child and there had been some kind of sexual goings-on between the governess and the children in the family. And Nathan Leopold comes out of this, comes into being a teenager, and he's about 18 or 19 when he's a student at the University of Chicago, and he gets into a relationship with another student, Richard Loeb, who is about six months younger than him. And Richard Loeb is, a, is really the opposite in a way. He's very outgoing, very extroverted, easily makes friends, very good-looking. And the two of them began to have this relationship. And the relationship was that Richard Loeb was obsessed with being a criminal, with conducting all of sorts of crimes of various degrees. And Nathan Leopold fell in love with Richard Loeb and so they had this relationship in which um Richard would give affection to Nathan, but the condition was that Nathan would follow along whenever Richard suggested some kind of adventure, some kind of crime and you know when i when I tell people about this they people who know nothing about the case they they're very surprised, and they're surprised that I know this, and they suspect i think. Once I give a talk and someone asks, well, did this really happen? Are you making it? With the implication that I was somehow making it up. And nothing I say is is invented. This is all in the psychiatric reports and it goes into great detail in these reports. And it's not just the psychiatric report of the scientist at St. Elizabeth's, but The defense attorneys brought in a second group of psychiatrists and they also produced a very similar report analyzing the two boys and trying to explain then why they would commit this crime and the best explanation they came up with was that Richard had always been wanting to push the envelope, always wanting to commit some more daring crime and he had progressed gradually up the kind of scale of crime until he reached the top, which is this murder. And the murder was going to be um, linked with a ransom that the family would pay. And this would make it a very complicated crime. And when this reached the newspapers, although nobody would ever know that it was Richard Loeb, that would be his moment of glory. And um, so this that's the basic outline of, of the reason why they did the crime but that really doesn't answer the deeper reason you know you can analyze it on one level and say yes they were trying to be more daring and here's the relationship between the two of them but it's still really inexplicable as to why you would do something so radical i mean why you would do something so extreme and that's i think that's the thing that baffles the baffles any explanation
1: Richard Loeb wanted to plan the perfect crime, and he enlisted Nathan Leopold Jr. to help him. But the plan ended up being anything but perfect. Can you explain how the seed was planted? Uh, How did idle talk and fantasy escalate to cold-blooded murder?
2: Um, Yeah, I I think that it was just a gradual escalation of crimes. They started out, um, I think, cheating at cards with friends. Richard Loeb was actually, he graduated from the University of Michigan and then went to the University of Chicago to do graduate work in history. And he and Nathan Leopold was doing, studying law at the University of Chicago. And um, the two of them had known each other for some time, and then they got together again, and they started out by doing small Things like smashing storefront windows, stealing cars, um, and it was that gradual escalation. And then they sat down and said, Let's kill a child, kidnap a child, kill the child, demand a ransom. And that's a completely complicated crime because how do you get the ransom without being caught? And the way they planned that was that they would ask the father, tell the father to throw the ransom money tightly wrapped in a cigar box from a train which went on the elevated tracks of the Illinois Central Railroad. And at a certain point, they would be waiting on the street underneath the tracks. They would see the cigar box come hurtling down onto the street and they would pick it up and drive away. And and nobody would be able to catch them because um, nobody would know the instructions would be on the train when the father got on the train and they would easily be able to drive away. And if someone is on the train, you can't just stop the train and get off the train and jump down onto the sidewalk it's much too high so so that was the kind of complicated planning that went into getting the ransom. As far as the killing went there wasn't I don't think there was a great deal of thought about that I think that they were very self-confident very self-assured they kind of assumed in a way that they would not be caught they didn't think they would be caught perhaps because they thought they were too clever Um, And and indeed, you know, it's very striking because if that workman had not been walking past that ditch If he had not seen that foot coming out of the pipe Then they would have got away with this crime because nobody would have known where the body was nobody would have known That the child was in fact dead. He would have simply disappeared and there would be no evidence They would never have found the glasses but it was that one thing where the man is walking past the ditch, he sees the foot, they pull out the body, they find the the corpse of the victim. So um, it almost did work, but once the police clued onto the eyeglasses, once they started getting this clue and other clues, then it all began to unravel. And and, and it unraveled very, very quickly, because once they were in custody, the state's attorney, Robert Crowe, then was very clever, very smart, and he he interrogated each of them separately. And once he had got certain details, once he broke their alibi, which was another important step, then he could go to one of the boys, say Nathan, and say Richard is telling all about the crime and he's saying you did it. So then Nathan would begin to blame Richard and the state's attorney would go into Richard, and he, and then Richard would start blaming Nathan, and so both of them, once the, once the dam had broken, so to speak, then they both began telling details about what they had done, but making sure that they blamed the other one, and so that's how it all began to unravel, and and it all happened over a weekend when they, they were so self-confident they never. At one point, Richard did ask for a lawyer, but the state's attorney ignored him. And the families, the two families, both the parents of Nathan Leopold and the parents of Richard Loeb, who were incidentally also very wealthy, they were so confident that their sons had nothing to do with this murder that they never bothered to get a defense attorney to defend their sons until it was much too late. And by the time that Clarence Darrow comes along, both of these boys had pretty much told everything they did to the state's attorney and seemed to have sealed their fates.
1: What I found striking while reading the book was how meticulous Leopold and Loeb were in planning many of the details of the crime. They'd put together a kidnapped murder kit. They'd been careful to rent the car they thought was nondescript enough to avoid attention. As you mentioned, they thought very carefully about how they would collect the ransom money. But the victim himself, uh, Bobby Franks, was picked up in an incredibly random way. Could, could you elaborate more on that?
2: Yes, well, you're absolutely right that they planned this for at least six months, every single detail, and they planned it to avoid detection, to avoid being caught, and but that still would be would tie in with the fact that their victim would be random it didn 't really matter who they killed. The idea was that they would simply kill someone and it didn't and and in a certain sense, the murder was kind of a secondary issue. It sounds strange to say that, but it it was in their minds a secondary issue because the main issue was simply doing a complicated crime, the perfect crime, and getting away with the perfect crime. So in their minds, it was really the planning and the execution to make sure they didn't get caught and yet get the ransom, kill the victim. So the identity of the victim in that, from that perspective, really didn't matter. And what happened was that on the afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, when they were looking for a victim, they were in this rented car that, as you say, they wanted to get a car that would not identify be identified as one of their cars. And, um, and of course, fewer people in those days owned expensive cars and fewer people owned cars, period. So there was a chance of them being identified and they got the rented car, they drove around the south side of Chicago right where they lived and they looked for a victim. They spent a couple of hours but they could never find a child who was by himself they really focused on a boy rather than a girl, and um, and then they were just about to give up. It was around five o'clock in the afternoon, early evening, and they were driving along uh, very close to the house of Bobby Franks. Bobby Franks was coming home from school, and um, and they saw him on the other side of the street, and And he was by himself. That was the key thing. He was alone and there was nobody else on the street. This is a very residential neighborhood with very big houses. And it's not not an area where you would expect to see many people on the street, primarily because the houses are so big and the grounds are so big. There's not a high density of people. So there he was by himself, and that was what they had been waiting for. And so they simply turned the car around. They drove up behind Bobby Franks, and Bobby Franks also was a cousin. He was related to Richard Loeb. So the victim, Bobby, did not know. Sorry, I think, yeah, the victim knew Richard Loeb, who was in the backseat. But Bobby, the victim, did not know Nathan Leopold. And then Richard and Bobby Franks, they were related. They were cousins. Uh, I don't remember exactly what level of cousin, but they knew each other well. And so it was a very easy matter for Richard to lure Bobby Franks into the front seat of the car. And once he was sitting there in the front seat and the car drove off, then Richard reaches over into the front and then... Asphyxiates, uh, asphyxiates Bobby Franks by putting a rag down his throat. So the killing was random, but you know that was what they were looking for. They weren't concerned with the identity of the victim. The killing happened very quickly, um, and um, and it was pretty much all over. But then, of course, that's really just the beginning of the story, because then you have this incredible court case. Um, you have the huge publicity in chicago it's it's quite literally on the front pages of every Chicago newspaper for the next three months, and it's also getting national and international coverage as well because and I, and I think the reason for that is because this was this would seem strange to us in twenty fifteen that two wealthy well educated children really they are children i mean they're eighteen and nineteen just out of just out of adolescence would kill another child but this was even more strange in the 1920s because in the 1920s the idea of crime was that crime was something that was almost genetically transmitted from generation to generation and it was really poor people who were in were who were criminals just as uh, poverty was associated with alcoholism, poverty was associated with prostitution, and so poverty and crime were supposedly living together, and that was the thought in the 1920s. So this murder and the accusation that two very pillar, children of pillars of the community, wealthy, um, prominent citizens could do something like this, just went against the grain of everything that was known or expected
1: about crime. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. When Johann Rohl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's
0: greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside.
1: Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: So Nathan Leopold Jr. was linked to the eyeglasses and eventually arrested. What was the arrest scene like?
2: Oh, I think that was rather low-key. I think it was simply a matter that Leopold was, they went to his house, they asked him if they could question him because the glasses had been found near the corpse. Um, and then Richard also went along to be interviewed by the state's attorney. And, and that was non-controversial because, you know, the police were probably interviewing many people um, and none, none of the families thought their their two boys had anything to do with it. Uh, And it was only later this shock announcement, really a few days later that the state's attorney made and said, we have the two murderers. And he could say that with confidence because both Richard and Nathan had confessed and, They had not only confessed verbally, but also the state's attorney was very clever because he interrogated them separately and then interrogated them together in the same room. And he asked Richard to talk about the crime, and Richard starts talking, and then the state's attorney turns towards Nathan and says, Nathan, look, you know, why don't you take notes on what Richard is saying just in case Richard gets something wrong. And so, and then the state's attorney Crow makes sure that he gets his hands on those notes and that's incriminating evidence. Although Nathan is not clever enough to realize that he doesn't realize that what he's doing is providing written evidence that in fact, the count that's much more difficult to deny after, after the fact it, might have been difficult to deny you know it might have been they might have said the lawyer might have come in and said you know they were beaten they were intimidated into giving these confessions but that became very difficult to do because they they never retracted it and it was far too late and then also the very strange strange aspect of the case is that not only did they confess in great detail but they even took the police around the various places where all of this happened and where they're disposed of various pieces of evidence. And the typewriter for the ransom note was dug out of the, taken out of the lagoon. And, and so it was like a huge amount of evidence that was just waiting to convict both of them and send them, to the, send them to the gallows.
1: Now there's some debate over who actually killed Bobby. Both Leopold and Loeb eventually confessed, but pointed to the other as the actual murderer. How does the evidence fit with your theory that Richard Loeb actually killed Bobby Franks?
2: Yeah, they did both blame each other because they had the idea that they would therefore avoid the death penalty if they could throw the actual act of killing onto the other person. That's not true. They, would, they would both would still have been liable for the death penalty. Um, but the evidence for Richard Loeb being the killer, being the person who actually did the deed, Comes in a reference in one of the psychiatric reports. I think it's Bernard Gluck. and he writes that in fact Richard told him that he had done the deed, um, and um, and and in a way, and, and Nathan was driving the car, and Nathan the the act of the killing was originally that Richard was sitting in the back seat. And Richard study started, started hitting the victim with the blunt end of the chisel with the handle thinking that this would somehow kill him but it didn't it merely produced a lot of blood and the child was still alive and then Richard because this is being done in daylight and they could easily have been seen by someone walking along the street Um, then Richard quickly pulled the victim, Bobby, into the back seat and stuffed a rag down his throat and, and taped over the rag, and then he died that way.
1: Part of what propelled this case into the national spotlight was the participation of famed criminal attorney Clarence Darrow. How did Darrow become involved in the case? Was he sought out by the families, or did he offer his services instead?
2: Well, with Darrow, what I did was uh, Darrow had earned a reputation two decades before as a as a lawyer for labor union leaders for the in- industrial workers of the world, for various labor unions who were involved at the time in bitter struggles for better wages and working conditions and darrow 's career was went into a kind of eclipse he became a criminal lawyer. Just in Chicago in the nineteen teens, but he was very successful in getting off in 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 avoiding the death penalty for his clients and This is all through the nineteen teens there were I went back through the newspapers and found out that there was one case I found where a woman had shot her husband in Open court they so were going through a divorce proceedings, and she pulls a gun out of her purse and shoots her husband and and then Darrow defends her, and he gets her off. you know it doesn't she's not given the death penalty. I think she was put in an asylum for a short time, and so he was the person to go to if you had a hopeless case and you wanted to get your if you wanted to avoid the death penalty and your case was hopeless, you would go to Clarence Darrow. And he was the big name in Chicago as defense lawyers. And um, and he his reason for taking the case was that he was a bitter opponent of the death penalty. And um, so he regarded this case as being, it would be a case that would get huge publicity and he would argue that these two defendants should not be given the death penalty. That was his angle. And, um, and he wasn't really, he, he didn't, no one expected them to be freed or to be found not guilty. That was not ever on the cards. But the question was, would they be getting the death penalty or would they be get life in prison? And so Darrow wanted to take the case on for that, that purpose.
1: Leopold and Loeb confessed to the crime, so there was never any question that they were involved. So what strategy did Darrow use in his defense of the boys?
2: Well, the, the thing for Darrow was how was he going to get his client's life in prison? And it was a tough case because they had confessed. It was a brutal murder. Public sympathy was overwhelmingly for the death penalty. The state's attorney was very, very smart and marshaled a ton of evidence. There was so much evidence, it was irrefutable. And there was no possible way that they could plead not guilty by reason of insanity because both of them appeared perfectly normal and they behaved perfectly normal in the courtroom. I mean, there was nothing to indicate that either Nathan Leopold or Richard Loeb were in the slightest degree even eccentric, let alone insane. So, um, and it, and and if Darrow had taken that, if he had pleaded them not guilty by reason of insanity, there wouldn't no jury would have bought that. The jury would have simply <clears throat> decided that they were guilty, and <clears throat> you know the state's attorney would have how for the death penalty, which is what Robert Crowe wanted. But then what Darrow did was very clever because he actually then went ahead and pleaded them guilty. And he asked the court, so now that he's pleaded them guilty, it's no longer a trial. There is no jury. There's no decision as to their guilt. They've already pleaded guilty. The only thing that remains is for them to be sentenced and darrow then argues mitigation of the sentence on the basis of their mental condition so he's not arguing that they're insane he's not arguing that they display insanity he's rather saying their mental condition reduces their responsibility therefore their sentence should be less than the death sentence now to argue that they have that their mental condition is abnormal he then brings in a ton of psychiatrists all of them very prominent people, international not just people with a national reputation but people with, with an international reputation all of them are Americans but they're the leaders of the field very very high level scientists and they come into court and they having analyzed the defendants beforehand they come into court and they explain why the mental condition of Nathan and Richard is is less, is not what it should be. And then Darrow makes his appeal to the judge on that basis. Now, the state's attorney, he argues the opposite. He brings in his psychiatrist and they're also prominent they're perhaps not so they're not superstars in the way that Darrow's psychiatrists are but they're very good psychiatrists they're also very reputable mainline people and I would just say incidentally that it's not at all true that this that the science that was presented in the courtroom is somehow false science or fraudulent science or mumbo-jumbo it's it's not at all it's it's the mainstream science that is very very respectable science so the psychiatrists bring in their differing views the judge listens to one side he listens to the other side the defense and the prosecution it's not really a prosecution but the defense attorney and the state's attorney make their points, they then give concluding speeches and and then the decision is made and everybody's waiting on the judge's decision. And the judge is going through, the judge is uh, called John Cavalli, had a lot of experience on the bench um, and he feels the stress is enormous because everybody's waiting for his decision and they wait for a week while he thinks it over. And then he comes back into the courtroom for the first time. It's on the radio. Uh, All the newspaper reporters are waiting for the decision. In fact, the whole country is waiting for the decision. And then he reads from some papers, some notes, and he decides that he's going to give both Nathan and Richard life plus 99 years. And so they did escape the death penalty, and he gives the reason he gives for this is a strange reason. A lot of people think it's a strange reason and he says they their age they're only eighteen and nineteen when they committed this crime, and that's the reason and so And so you might ask yourself, well, what was the point of all that psychiatric testimony? It had no point at all because the judge merely decided that because they were so young, he would spare them the death penalty. And the state's attorney had made some very good points. The state's attorney had anticipated that outcome, and in the concluding speech, the, the the lawyers for the state's attorney had produced a whole list of young boys and men who, at the age of 18, had been executed within living memory you know within a very short time before and their point was here are all these other young men teenagers who've been executed for various crimes given the death penalty why should and they were all very poor they were all from the slum area of chicago and their argument was look why should you give these rich boys life in prison and yet the president if you go from past it's the death penalty has been given to these 18 year olds a few years before but that was the decision of the judge and um, and there's no appeal of course because this is a hearing to determine sentence. It's not a trial to determine the verdict so the state's attorney could not appeal that decision of the judge and as a consequence Nathan and uh, Richard went off to Joliet prison which is in the center of the state in the center of Illinois.
1: What was life like in prison for Leopold and Loeb?
2: Well they ended up in Joliet, which is a very old prison, I think built originally in the eighteen fifties. The sort of prison that just looks out of central casting. It looks like a thick walls, has that kind of battlement uh walls that you that are like an old castle. Uh, it's a wonderful sight to see and it looks the same now as it did in the 1920s the only difference is that it has a huge amount of razor wire just surrounding the perimeter of the prison which it didn't have in the 1920s Um, but they end up in Joliet I'm not sure I can't remember how long they are in Joliet for before they get transferred to a modern prison called Statesville and both at Joliet and Statesville, they, the story is that they engage in good works, particularly Nathan Leopold. A lot of it, a lot of what is said about Nathan Leopold is really not true. Uh, for example, there's this claim that he had learned many languages. I mean, various people say 12 languages or 18 languages or six languages. And this is from someone who's 19 years old. And it's not true at all. He didn't didn't know all this stuff. He wasn't a genius. But he wrote a book later, and he makes all these absurd claims to be a genius. And he also claims that he had done all this great work being in the hospital ward, in the prison, and founding a school for the other prisoners. And it's very difficult to know where the reality begins and the fantasy ends. I take all of this stuff with a grain of salt. But basically, Richard is killed in prison in 1936 in the shower by another prisoner. Nathan goes on, and then his life is geared around towards getting parole. And so all of this, all of these good works, all of this boasting about this accomplishment and that accomplishment, he's angling towards eventually getting parole, which he does, he does get parole. I think it's 1950, 1958, he eventually is paroled from Statesville.
1: So as you mentioned, uh, Richard Loeb, the mastermind behind the murder, is killed while in prison. Nathan Leopold is released. Uh, what happens to Leopold once he's paroled?
2: well he can't stay in chicago because he he is notorious um and he just has dozens of newspaper reporters following him around wanting an interview exploring his every angle of his life so he actually moves to puerto rico which is far far away and he um takes courses at the university of puerto rico he settles down He actually met a woman called Trudy who owned a flower shop and they got married. I can't remember exactly when they got married, perhaps somewhere in the early sixties. I'm not sure. And, um, he was on, I think for five years, he was on a kind of probation for his parole. So he couldn't travel outside the island. And, um, he couldn't do very much for those five years, but once that ended, then he could travel and he came back to the United States, to the mainland at least, and um, gave interviews. And he, he was very successful in creating this public image of himself as someone who was a philanthropist who had devote, who had devoted his life to good works. And this was amazingly successful. It's quite extraordinary. And I think it's my opinion is that it was all completely fake. And yet he fooled so many people. And there was even a college in Virginia, some small college. I don't know what the name was. And they proposed to give him an honorary degree for his good works. And the the faculty got a wind of this. And there were protests and it was withdrawn. But he just had this ability to conjure up this image of himself as this Wonderful philanthropist who had who had uh, turned the other <laughs> leaf, and this all tied into recidivism and you know rehabilitation and the debate about uh, a punishment and so on and so forth and um, and he he really did achieve a kind of fame and then of course what piled on the fame were the films and the books. And there were two films made. One was called um, Compulsion, which is actually the most accurate historically. And the other one is um, Compulsion stars Orson Welles. And the other one is Rope, which is a slightly different setting, but it's still based on the case. And then there were novels. There were at least three novels produced in the 1950s. And then after the novels, there were there's now the history books, books of, that try to produce a non-fictional account. And, and I'm sure there's going to be somebody, many people after my book, I'm sure they're going to keep writing about it because it's a case that continues to fascinate people. Mm.
1: I figured that as long as we're in nineteen twenty four Chicago, we might as well stay for a while. Bobby Franks was kidnapped near his house on Ellis Avenue, in the Kenwood Hyde neighborhood of the city, just a half a block away from President Barack Obama's current Chicago home. While the murder of Bobby Franks sent shockwaves through Hyde Park, on the opposite end of the city, the north side, Irish gangster Dino Banion ruled the roost, from his headquarters above Schofield's Flower Shop, across from Holy Name Cathedral on North State Street. Dino Banyan, also known as Dion, was born in central Illinois to Irish immigrant parents in 1892 and actually sang at the cathedral as a boy. However, he preferred hanging out on street corners to religion. Soon he got in with the local Irish gangsters, a group called the Market Street Gang, and along with his good friends, Jaime Weiss and Bugs Moran, became sluggers. Sluggers were hired by newspapers to beat down newsstand owners who refused to carry the Chicago Tribune. When Prohibition became law in 1920, O'Banion got to work as a bootlegger. He smuggled beer and whiskey in from Canada. His new North Side gang ran his side of town with a ruthless hand, and rumor had it that O'Banion was making a million dollars a year at the height of his power. Early on, he and Johnny Torrio, along with Torrio's right-hand man Al Capone, who ran the South Side gang, had helped divvy up Chicago into territories. For three years, their relationship was solid, until O'Banion started getting greedy. He knew that Torrio's outfit was cleaning up in Cicero, and pestered Torrio about it until the Italian gave in. Torrio gave O'Banion a strip of land to run his own saloons and casinos. Soon, O'Banion was luring businesses from other parts of Chicago onto his Cicero territory, and it made Torrio and mad. This, along with a few other incidents, escalated the tension between the two. When O'Banion offered Torrio his share of the profitable Sieben Brewery for $500,000, The feds raided the brewery as soon as O'Banion cleared out, and Torrio was arrested, which angered him even further. Things finally came to a climax when Angelo Jenna, a member of the powerful Jenna gang, who ran downtown Chicago, lost a ton of cash at O'Banion's Cicero Casino. He left a large marker, and while Torrio and Capone suggested that O'Banion forgive the debt to keep the peace between the Irish and the Italians, Obanion would have none of it. He got Jenna on the phone and demanded payment within a week, embarrassing Jenna in front of Capone and Torrio. That was it for Angelo Jenna. When the Jenna gang leader Mike Murlo passed away, members of the Jenna gang used Obanion's flower shop to order floral arrangements for the funeral. However, they were casing the place too, getting ready for a big hit. On the morning of November 10, 1924, just six months after Bobby Frank's murder, Dean O'Banion met his maker. O'Banion was cutting chrysanthemums in the back room when three Jenna Gang hitmen, John Scalise, Albert Selmi, and Frankie Yale, entered the shop. As Yale shook hands with O'Banion, he tightened his grip, and Scalise and Selmi fired at O'Banion, putting two slugs in the mobster's chest and two in his throat a final shot in the back of the head, finished O'Banion forever. This, of course, set off a brutal gang war between the Northside Irish and the Southside Italians, culminating in the infamous and bloody St. Valentine's Day Massacre, five years later in 1929. (laughs) ¶¶ This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting true-life tales of historical crime to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Visit mostnotorious.com for more information about the show, or find Most Notorious on Facebook. And don't forget my Detective Harm Queen historical mystery series of books. The Big Mitt and Ill Fame are available through my website and through Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com along with many fine bookstores near you. It's a trip back to 1901 Minneapolis, during a time when cops and crooks were in cahoots to milk the city for all it was worth. And please visit patreon.com slash mostnotorious and become a show patron. All donations are appreciated to help fund the research, writing, and equipment necessary to run this thing. And I'm Eric Rivenis. See us latest.